0: My political opinions lean more and more to anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs, or to unconstitutional monarchy. I would arrest anybody who uses the word state in any sense other than the inanimate realm of England and its inhabitants, a thing that has neither power, rights, nor mind. And after a chance of recantation, Execute them. J. R. R. Tolkien. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. David Graeber, when he writes about this quote from Tolkien, points out that Anarchy and unconstitutional monarchism both don't have a bureaucracy. I'll go even farther than that. I'll point out that an unconstitutional monarch can't make sure his orders are enforced without a bureaucracy. I think Tolkien might even be just kidding when he says unconstitutional monarchy. What could that possibly even mean? Okay, I'll come back to that at the end. And discuss it. If you have an absolute monarch though, it does seem like you need someone to carry out those orders. A prime minister or a vizier. Someone whose job it is to make sure the coercion happens. And when we look at the Lord of the Rings, the villains are pretty much always prime ministers or viziers. Rulers. Power itself. When we're done, I think you'll see that this incredibly influential novel, this trilogy is in fact a work of anarchism. But wait, you might be saying, isn't it a work of conservatism? Isn't it kind of about how great Europe is and Christianity and white people and kings? And I think it is a work of conservatism. And insofar as it's a work of racial conservatism, it seems to me quite deplorable. You know, there are Eastern barbarian people in this text, and they do not come off well, but leaving that aside, and if you want to read about that, there's plenty of people who have written about race in the Lord of the Rings, just because it's conservative doesn't mean it's not anarchist. One of the great anarchists, George Orwell, described himself as a Tory anarchist. For Americans, Tory is an Englishism for conservative. In 21st century America, we tend to distinguish conservative versus progressive. This is good, at least it's way better than uh, conservative versus liberal. But I've certainly noticed that people on the left want to define progressive as good. Whatever the position the left likes is defined as progressive. And I would like to use that word a little bit more specifically. Progressive means the new scientific way of doing things. It means breaking down old ways. It means building new systems. And ever since the Enlightenment invention of progressivism, progressivism has cut both with and against left-wing ideas. If progressivism is doing things the new way, the scientific way, it can mean getting rid of the monarchy, getting rid of of the aristocracy all sorts of things like that but it can mean building factories progress and capitalism often go hand in hand how about the keystone xl pipeline progressives hated the keystone xl pipeline but what could be more progressive than burning lots of oil and building lots of factories isn't that what science loves and who hates the Keystone Pipeline. Well, anyone who believes in the conservation of the earth, there you go right there. That's the word conservative in there. And then the First Nations, the first right there being this is a, an older way of doing things, a world that existed before the monstrous nature of capitalism. We want to define capitalism as separate from progressive. Both of these things our products of the Enlightenment are about forward-looking, about using science to do what we want to do. And there's certainly an anarchist tradition that wants to say, no. This takes us to the guilds. So the guilds have been dying for hundreds of years and have been pretty much dead for at least a hundred years or so. And they are one of the great enemies of progressivism. They try to stop progress. And in a lot of ways, this is good. We can think of all sorts of things the guilds blocked that we would want to have. But one of the things the guilds did absolutely was made sure that everyone who was in the guild counted. And the only people who got to make decisions were people within the guilds. Everyone got training. And once you reached the master level, you had a voice you had a vote. There were hierarchies among masters, but those hierarchies were created by the masters themselves. So after an apprenticeship period, the guilds give you a form of democracy. They use their power to block progress, certainly, but they also use their power to empower their members. Something like a factory with one boss and 10,000 people who have had their humanity removed, that is against the guild ethos. So the guilds really stand for a version of anarchism. I would say a conservative version of anarchism. And now that we don't have guilds anymore, we have trades, we have professions, we have labor unions, we have these various things, but mostly we just have corporations. That's what replaced the guild. It's much more progressive, they're much more efficient, and they're more efficient at destroying the world and destroying the lives of human beings. So that's the bad kind of progress. There is though one guild that's still going, although it is under threat as all the other guilds are, that's the guild of knowledge. We call those universities. I say under threat because it used to be that professors ran the universities. Professors made all the decisions. There were lots of professors. You could follow the apprenticeship structure get the tenure-track job, and become part of this guild. Now though, professors are largely being replaced by all sorts of people who teach but are not empowered. Um, adjuncts are uh, a, a version of this trend. And then more and more politicians and military leaders and people from outside the guild are given power uh, to run the universities. So. But the place where this anarchistic form of organization is strongest, the place where, as far as I know, the politicians and the bureaucrats are still not running the show, is Oxford and Cambridge. I mean, the Guild ethos is so strong there that Oxford and Cambridge aren't even really universities in our sense. They are colleges. They are federations of dons. So everyone there is... Working together as opposed to being structured in this one giant hierarchy from the president to the provost to the deans and all down. It's very much bottom up versus top down, at least compared to a 21st century American university. Certainly, there's nothing perfectly non-hierarchical about Oxford, nor was there ever but it was still a version of anarchism, especially in the early 20th century. And yes, Tolkien was an Oxford Don. Who would an Oxford Don see as the enemy? Who are the barbarians at the gates? Bureaucrats, the minister of education, industrialists who want to give a donation to Oxford and then insist who is going to be in charge. These are the people that anarchists hate, and these are the people that Tolkien would have hated as a member of Oxford. One more note from, uh, Tolkien. He also wrote that one positive thing in the world around him was the growing habit of disgruntled men of dynamiting factories and power stations. Wow. That is anarchism. That's not everyday anarchism either. That's Tolkien, Tolkien praising the violent destruction of the structures of power. All right, so now that I've set up how that Tolkien's version of anarchism is very much the product of his time and in institutions, and it's both an everyday anarchism and a political anarchism, let's leave 20th century England and go to Middle Earth, the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to cover four major moments in the series. Honestly, I wrote tons more. I tried to pick the ones that let me make the points the best. You could do another hour on this. Saruman ended up getting cut. There was so much there. Um, I am using the novels. I think everything I'm using is in the movies, but I haven't watched the movies lately, and I have never watched the four-hour-long expanded editions, and those presumably have everything. So what am I going to talk about? The ring will be my first topic. The second topic is the fellowship. Third topic is Galadriel, the potential good queen or good monarch, and the fourth topic is uh Denethor, Baragond and treason against the bad monarch. All right, part 1, the ring. The ring is in this series of novels, the instantiation of evil. It is the worst thing. In some ways the ring seems to be even worse than Sauron the villain. His essence is in it. It's taken on a life of its own. And what is the ring? It is power. It is coercion. It is violence. It is everything that is against anarchism. All right, time to read the poetry. Sorry, I'm not very good at reading poetry, but I'll try. Here's the famous line from the novel. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Rule, find, bind. Restriction and coercion is what The Ring does. And remember, Sauron is the lidless eye, the all-seeing eye. You could think about The Ring as the perfect police state, the tool that not only sees everything, but coerces everyone that it catches. If you want to think about the vision of evil in this novel, I recommend you think about the movie The Dark Knight, and Batman, Bruce Wayne, creates this system that can spy on everyone. And he does this for good reasons, because Batman is good, right? We'll get to that later. Believe me, Batman will be coming up in a later episode of this podcast. But this is very anti-anarchist, and this is Tolkien's vision of the ultimate evil. The ability to see what everyone is doing and force them to bow to a central hierarchy. The three rings of the elves are totally different. This is Gandalf's description of those three rings. They were not made as weapons of war or conquest. That is not their power. Those who made them did not desire strength or domination or hoarded wealth, but understanding, making, and healing to preserve all things unstained. Um, Understanding, making... Healing. Look, we've got artisanship, we've got mutual aid, we've got cooperation. There's power in these rings, but it's power that can only be used collectively and positively. It can only build, it can only heal, it can only understand. It cannot dominate. Although, Gandalf also tells us that the rings can be dominated by this other evil ring. And he says, quote, it would be better if they had never been than if they are taken over by Sauron. Anything that can be used, anything that has power can be used in Tolkien for either mutual aid or cooperation, but it can also be used for coercion and hierarchy. We can also come back to this idea I've been suggesting of a conservative anarchism. Um, Gandalf says that these things are, these rings are to preserve all things unstained. Again, that's a conservative idea. It's like protecting a forest. The rings are about protecting things that already exist, not about making things progressive, fixing them, making them work. These are what they do. The uh, factories. Um, in Isengard are the exact opposite of this. Fire is used to make weapons of war and warp humans and elves into soldiers. That's what an evil use of these rings would be, and it's the opposite of preserving things unstained. Mutual aid is the opposite of a factory, and that's what Gladriel and Gandalf and Elrond have been doing. It's also the... Uh, The factory is the opposite of, you know, professors sitting around and drinking tea and talking about their ideas. This is anarchism. But sometimes it's not enough to just do mutual aid and cooperation. Sometimes you have to fight the enemy. And in The Lord of the Rings, the people who are set out to fight the enemy are the Fellowship. Hence the title, The Fellowship of the Ring. Notice, it is not... giant army. It's not a hierarchical military command that is the unit that opposes Sauron. It is a quest, it is a group, it is a team. And this drives to this day so much of popular culture. Think about the Avengers. What are they but a fellowship? The same goes for the Guardians of the Galaxy. They are a group of people come together freely to work. They are not a military organization. We'll talk about S.H.I.E.L.D. later in another podcast. So in Tolkien, it's not the armies that ultimately win. It's not magic. It's not even the cursed warrior ghosts and the angry trees. It's friendship. It's cooperation. It's fellowship. Fellowship. What a lovely anarchist word. Gandalf describes the Fellowship as being made up of all the free peoples. And more importantly, the members of the Fellowship themselves are free. There is an argument when the Fellowship is formed. Um, Elrond says that the Fellows in the Fellowship are not going to have to swear an oath. They are free. The Others go with him as free companions to help him on his way. You may tarry or come back or turn aside other paths as chance allows. The further you go, the less easy will it be to withdraw. Yet no oath or bond is laid on you to go further than you will. For you do not yet know the strength of your hearts. And you cannot foresee what each may meet upon the road. Gimli the dwarf objects. He says, faithless is he that says farewell when the road Darkens. And he goes on to say, Sworn word may strengthen quaking heart. So Gimli wants a law, a rule. We have to stick to this fellowship. And Elrond responds, Or break it. But go now with good hearts. So there's a huge difference between Elrond's conception of the fellowship as is actually created and Gimli's. Go now with good hearts hearts. Everyone is going to do their best based on how much they can help and how they are called to help. This is not good enough for Gimli. He wants rules. He wants laws. He wants an oath. We are going to stick together no matter what. But what Elrond knows is you can't make that kind of promise. Or Rather, you can, but you don't know if you can keep it or not. And that kind of promise ends up hypocrisy. I swear to follow the ring all the way to Mordor and throw it into the volcano. No, no one actually ends up able to do that. If they had been trying to follow that oath, every single one of them, including Frodo, would have failed. And Elrond, in classic anarchist fashion, knows that. Do your best, work together, go with good hearts. The alternative is what? A contract? That's what a contract is. It's a sworn oath. But you can't just have contracts out in the wild, can you? We've talked about this already. Once you have a contract, you need a court of law, you need lawyers, you need consequences, you need arguing, you need this whole hierarchy. What good is it going to do you? Can you imagine Uh Gimli taking Boromir to court for having betrayed his oath, this doesn't make any sense in the world of Middle-earth. And I think there's foreshadowing when Elrond is talking about people not knowing the strength of their hearts. I think Boromir would have happily sworn an oath, but he simply is not up to the task. He has a dream of how the power will be used. He cannot abide the idea of destroying power. Boromir wants to take power and do something good with it. This is the progressive dream. And we see a progressive potential path in the form of Galadriel. The use of coercion and power for good ends. So this is part three, the Elf Queen Galadriel. But before we get to Galadriel, some more real world examples from real world anarchism. No one has hunted capital A anarchists like the Marxist, Leninist, Stalinists. You might think that the fascists are the ultimate enemies of anarchists. But traditionally, that has not been true. The fascists hate the anarchists, of course, and hunt them down. But nothing like the Marxist-Leninists do. Uh, There were basically no anarchists left in the USSR for Stalin to kill because Lenin and Trotsky killed or exiled them first. They honestly seem to be, in some ways, a bigger priority for Lenin and Trotsky than the people who were trying to uphold the czar's government were. Mao hated the anarchists. Before Lenin and Trotsky, Marx had a huge power struggle with them and kicked them out of the left-wing communist movement. Stalin's agents hunted Orwell down during the Spanish Civil War. Because the great lesson of anarchism is that you cannot be a good boss. You can't have a good dictator. There is no version of good coercion. To quote Bakunin, who was the anarchist in Marx's time, who had enormous struggles with him and lost all of them, nothing is more dangerous for man's private morality than the habit of command. The best man, the most intelligent, disinterested, generous, pure, will infallibly and always be spoiled at this trade. To put it another way, power corrupts power corrupts the best people. As soon as you set out to fix the situation, to take power and do the right thing with it, you go down a road towards doing the wrong thing. And Tolkien gives us this person in the figure of Galadriel, played by Cate Blanchett in the movies. She is utterly overwhelming to everyone who meets her. She is just, everyone's filled with awe, right? She is Awful, in the older sense of wondrous, of sublime. She is like a mountain or an ocean. And when Frodo meets her, she seems like the solution to the problem. Hey, we've got this bad guy, Sauron. He's going to destroy all of us. He has lots of power. I'm just this little hobbit. What am I going to do? I know. I will give lots of power to this wonderful woman. This majestic elf queen who can fix the problem. He says, You are wise and fearless and fair, Lady Galadriel. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. It is too great a matter for me. Galadriel laughed. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years I had pondered what I might do, should the great ring come into my hands, and behold, it was brought within my grasp. And now at last it comes. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the dark lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. Dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. I pass the test, she said. I will diminish and go into the west and remain Galadriel. Power for Tolkien is a test. There is no wielding it wisely. Galadriel would fix everything. It would be a dictatorship of love and kindness. I mean, that's not even a dictatorship at all, is it really? It's for your own good. It's for the greater good. Can't you see that we are going to make things better? Don't you want a progressive person in power? Wouldn't it be Better to have a nice, pretty lady in charge who wants everything to be good and clean and white as opposed to all the black and red of Mordor? I mean, to use a political example here from our recent times, when we had the crisis over the immigrant children in cages during the Trump administration, it wasn't that hard to find out that it was actually the Obama administration that Built the famous cages. You can be Barack Obama, who I still think is probably the most left-wing president we've ever had in his personal views, and you still end up putting kids in cages. Sure, a Galadriel administration would be better than a Sauron administration, but you would probably let your guard down with Galadriel. In fact, Frodo did let his guard down. Here's a good person. I will give her the ring. I will give her all that power that way lies a good person doing terrible things which in so many ways is worse than a bad person doing terrible things and sam uh frodo's sidekick still believes in this dream of the good person with power i think my master was right he says i wish you'd take his ring you'd put things to rights You'd stop them digging up the gaffer and turning him adrift. You'd make some folk pay for their dirty work. This is what Sam wants. He wants someone to be mean to the people who are being mean. I would, she said. That is how it would begin. But it would not stop with that. Alas, we will not speak more of it. This is the dream of good power. This is the dream of a new progressive administration that will put things to right. This is the dream of an institution that is run by the right people in the right way to do good things. But there's no such thing in Tolkien's universe. Everyone who wants power uses it badly. This is why Gladriel doesn't touch the ring. This is why Gandalf doesn't touch the ring. This is why Baromir fails and fails. Baromir and Denethor and Soromon are all good. They are all on the right side. They are all on team justice. And they all intend to bring their own personal vision of justice via power. But according to anarchism, justice is freedom of power. You cannot work in the interest of freedom... Using power. Whoever it is, and Sauron gets pretty close, will just become another Sauron. And if you go deeper into the history of Middle Earth, this is in fact who Sauron is. He is a Milton's uh, Satan figure, a fallen angel, someone who started out good but who was corrupted by power. Sauron is one of many, many people in Tolkien's stories who become corrupted, not because there's anything intrinsically evil about them, but because they believe in power, perhaps even that they believe they are the right person to wield power. And I think this is the thing that terrifies Tolkien the most. The good person who becomes so enmeshed in bureaucracy, and the wielding of power, and the administration of the state, that they become the evil that they set out to fight. All right, this brings us to our fourth part, Denethor, Barragond, and Treason. Denethor is a pure administrator. He is the nightmare of Tolkien's vision. If you don't remember, he is a steward who is a hereditary ruler who rules uh, Gondor, which is the good place, the place that opposes Sauron when the king isn't around, which is great because stewards are great at bureaucracy. That's what they do, right? This is a prime minister. This is a secretary put in charge of the whole thing. If you remember, Tolkien said he only liked unconstitutional monarchy. Under a steward. You've got a constitution without a monarchy. That's the worst of both worlds. Let me briefly, though, explain what I mean by constitution, especially in the British context. This is what Tolkien would have meant, certainly. Constitution doesn't mean a written document. It means the constituent parts of the power structure. That's what a constitution is. And what the U.S. Constitution does is write down what the constituent parts are. So we use this term now to mean the written governing document. But the older and I think better sense of the term is who holds power in a government. And the greatest constitution, right, is the English constitution or now the British constitution. It's not written down. No one ever gets to point to it and say, aha, this is what these three words mean. And this is why we have to do it this way. is actually a much more anarchist way of doing a constitution there you you can't just appeal to the written document you have to work together and figure out or you know fight a civil war um this i think is the reason why they still have a royal family because it's terrifying to have a government that has no clear constitution this is why they have the queen Because they point to her and say, oh, well, she's, you know, the living embodiment of the Constitution. She's what it's all about. Even though that's clearly not true, there's imaginatory, explanatory power in having a queen there. I think that sort of figurehead is what lets the British monarchy endure. Our figurehead in the United States, I think, is our Constitution, most of which we don't really use. People say all the time, oh, that's unconstitutional unconstitutional. What they really mean is that the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional in 1907. When people say things are unconstitutional, they are not usually referring to that document. The Supreme Court is super anarchist and also the least anarchist of our federal institutions. So I will be talking about that in another episode. So The stewardship of Gondor has all the pieces of a constitution without that magical person in the center who can prevent tyranny. This is why the British monarchy has endured, because when the new constitution and the power of parliament was rising in the 18th and 19th century, the king's job, or in the case of Victoria, the monarch's job, I should say, was to prevent injustice, was to prevent tyranny. It's not the king's job to rule. It's the king's job to step in when the elected rulers are doing bad things and to fix it. And the American Revolution happens because the king has said, I am not going to step in. The colonists in what will become the United States are saying to themselves and to parliament and to the ministers and to the king, okay, there are all these bad people. There are all these evil ministers who have gotten drunk with power. But the king will fix this. The king will save us. Of course he will. The king's power cannot be threatened. This is an unconstitutional monarchy. The king can do whatever he wants. So who is he going to hate? Who is he going to side with? Why would a king get jealous of anyone? How could a king possibly be corrupt? This is an 18th and 19th century idea about what makes a king good. The king sits outside of all of these structures of power and thus can step in. You can think of a show like Undercover Boss, right? The CEO isn't beholden to anyone. He has unlimited power. He just wants good things to happen. So he'll go and he'll fix things. This is, as they found in the European monarchies, post-Enlightenment, a ridiculous idea. There is no such thing as the unconstitutional monarch, and as soon as you threaten the minister, the king freaks out and thinks, ah, my power is being challenged. The king absolutely has a side. The king is not this floating person above it all and thus able to intervene. So when you challenge George III's ministers, George III gets angry, and you end up with the American revolution. To return to Dinathor, his position is even worse. The king has returned. The return of the king is a pretty significant event, and now the steward will have no power. And in despair, and because of his corruption, Dinathor decides to kill himself, as well as his son, Faramir, Boromir's brother, who is much better and not tempted by power, so his loss will actually be very sad. Pippin goes to find Gandalf, and Gandalf says to him, what are you doing here? Is it not a law in the city that those who wear the black and silver must stay in the citadel unless their lord gives them leave? He has, said Pippin. He sent me away, but I am frightened something terrible may happen up there the lord is out of his mind i think i'm afraid he will kill himself and kill faramir too can't you do something okay pippin has joined uh the guard of gondor he's in the praetorian guard i guess of gondor and he has been sent away why because denethor knows That Pippin's loyalty is to doing the right thing and not to the law, not to obedience, not to oaths. The law will not bind Pippin, so he is sent away. But it turns out there's someone else not bound by the law. Pippin's friend and guard mentor, Baragond, actually stops this burning. He prevents Faramir from being murdered. Here's Gandalf's gloss on this. So passes Denethor, son of Echthelion, said Gandalf. And then he turned to Baragond, and the lord's servants that stood there aghast. And so pass also the days of Gondor that you have known. For good or evil they are ended. Ill deeds have been done here, but let now all enmity that lies between you be put away. For it was contrived By the enemy and works his will. You have been caught in a net of warring duties that you did not weave. But think, you servants of the Lord, blind in your obedience, that but for the treason of Baragond, Faramir, captain of the White Tower, would now also be burned. You have been caught in a net of warring duties that you did not weave. On the one hand, there is the compulsion to follow The word of Denethor, the ruler of the city, the law, the institutions. This seems like a lot of things. These are duties are powerful. But in fact, seen anarchistically, no, this is pretty simple. A crazy man, a madman, drunk with power and despair and being manipulated by Sauron, has decided to murder his son. The choice should be easy. The choice is very difficult because Baragond is not an anarchist. He is a guardsman, but he chooses. He goes against the law. He commits treason. Treason is the hero of this part of the Lord of the Rings. It is treasonous to do what Baragond has done, and it is also the right thing to do. The sworn word strengthened the quaking heart's of the other servants and guardsmen to do the wrong thing, Baragond broke his sworn word to do the right thing. So there you have it. The Lord of the Rings is a series of novels, a story in praise of anarchism. The hero is fellowship, not rule, customs, not laws, wisdom, not power, nature, not industrialization, treason, not obedience. Tolkien was an anarchist. I mean, he wrote positively about anarchists blowing up buildings. This makes sense because he was a professor. He was against the new ordering of things by hierarchy. The universities were still, in his time, a bastion of anarchism. And something I did not talk about. The great outbreak of anarchy in the world. The worst example of all the powers that be killing each other in the name of power even as they claimed, the powers that be that is, claimed that they were the only ones who could stop senseless murder and violence was World War I. It was the most pointless outbreak of death and violence we have ever seen. It was state systems, hierarchy, progressivism, the future, military technology, factories coming together to destroy humanity. Tolkien fought in World War I. Tolkien watched friends and loved ones die. And then he retreated back to a world that made sense. Yes, a fantasy world, Middle Earth, but also a real world, Oxford, a place that, despite its obvious privileges and inequalities, was for its members a relatively non-hierarchical collective. Is it any wonder that anarchism was the guiding principle of his novels? Okay, that's it for this episode. Uh, we are going to leave Middle Earth to consider the history, the politics, the social role of divorce and how It, divorce as an institution, is a force in our everyday lives for anarchism, especially as it relates to the freedom of women. Before then, of course, I will have the question and answer session. So please send me your questions, especially about Tolkien and anarchism. I would love to hear your thoughts and responses to the idea of anarchism as the guiding principle of the Lord of the Rings to Everyday Anarchism Podcast at gmail.com. I can't wait to hear from you and I will remind you again that the theme music which you are about to hear is written and performed by David Hill. Talk to you soon.